0: Two, three, four Just two good old boys Two good do old boys, boys. Never meeting the harm Be sorry never saw they had no hair since the day they was born Straighten the curves Straighten Straight the, the curves, curves. Coffee might get but the Lord never will, for casting away.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's show. Nice to have you on the big red bus, the big red bus, the wind. We've come to Noah's home here on the Mojo Radio Show. If you're new, welcome aboard. Thanks for tuning in. And if you're a regular, uh, you know who we are, you know what we're all about. Good to have you back on the bus. Uh, take a seat, we'll be departing shortly. Let's say hello to our voiceover guy in the booth. In fact, AP, who is just finishing loading the luggage. <laughs> Thanks, AP. Yeah, luggage, aka cases of wine. <laughs> well, you know, times are tough. The boy's got to make a le- got to earn a living. We're throwing him a actually, what are I was throwing him nothing. <laughs> And that voice you can hear is the man behind the steering wheel. He is how we so back in the day we used to say chained to the wheel. Uh, Robbo, welcome to this week's show. Thanks, mate. Can I have a bit of a gloat? Have a gloat that I've got a question for you. Second game for the Withered Oaks yesterday. Who do you think scored best and fairest?
2: Oh no, come on, get
1: some. (laughs) Come and get some, some sunshine. (laughs) So after five seasons, all that work's finally starting to pay off. Are you a bit sore today? I am a bit sore today, a bit bashed and bruised, but yeah. Good. Yeah, good. good. That's right, exactly. Bit of resilience. Now I've got a question for you. Go. Are you still on the tools? Are you still, what are you building at the moment? Um, do you know what? I'm actually uh, working on a little kitchen cabinet thing for um, for our kitchen. My my wife has a, a little wicker basket thing that she puts potatoes and onions and all that sort of stuff in, but we've got this big spare space in the corner of the kitchen. So I'm building like a a kitchen island that will be on wheels, but it also has little baskets underneath where she can put her potatoes and onions and garlic and all the good stuff. So um, that's, it. that's on the workshop bench at the moment. See, I think it's a lesson for... When people are podcasting, it's not just you talk to guests week after week, then you move on to the next guest, you move on to the next guest. But I think the stuff that we take out of and apply in Mm. the real world, Mm. I think is really appropriate. And one of the things that we have spoken to people about probably the last couple of seasons is, and I remember you saying, I think we came out of the new year last year. And you said, I hadn't picked up the tools. And you'd heard somebody on our show talk about that. Hmm. You picked up the tools and you did that. So on the weekend, I picked up the tools. Oh, nice. What do you want to? Yeah. Well, this is going to sound very redneck, which is why I'm enjoying it so much. (laughs) But I am tanning my first hide. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great idea. So we knocked a steer and this was a black belty bull. Yep. Over a solid black mum that gave us this black steer with a thin white stripe that was known as a zippy. Right. Nice. Not so zippy anymore. <laughs> Negative. So, uh, but it was a, a beautiful coat. So I said to the guys processing it, keep it for me. So we wrapped it in salt, put it aside. But what's, there's a couple of lessons. This. Number one is doing things. This is completely foreign for me. I grew up in a house where I didn't even have a hammer, so doing any of this stuff is completely foreign. Mm. But I have learned everything I've done so far of the process from YouTube, and there are some absolute redneck YouTube clips on there. Yeah, I'm sure of guys doing everything from you know tanning a buck buck hide to lambs, coons, mm. uh, and all the rodents, and it's just fascinating. So on the weekend, I started the process yep. found a a tool for what they call fleshing yep, mate it off. it's it's really hard work I which bet is it great is. yeah uh, into the wee hours of last night. And, um, but yeah, and it's completely uncomfortable for me because I've never done it before. But I think fascinating that you used to buy a book or find a magazine or talk to an old mate across the fence. Now you go to YouTube. That's right. Exactly. And, you, you know, the best thing out of it is you're going to look stunning once you've got it, once you've got it tanned and you turn it into your little outfit that you've got planned. That's it. I, I think it's going to make nice, uh, a nice little car. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know what's going to happen in the end of it, but I'm okay having a crack because I'm yeah. not worried about impressing anybody I'm just doing it more for learning a new skill getting very uncomfortable where I can pick up the skills to be able to do it and maybe in a couple of years time I'll have something that will look good as a poncho and you know the other nice thing to being being a butcher's son is it's always nice to see people who use the whole animal too you know like show some respect to the animal and, and use everything as well, so um, so that's all good, good. It's true, actually. We did think about that because we now we will keep the coats, and it's it's hard work. And once I think I get used to it, I'll be able to do it a lot quicker. But it's mm. still hard work and quite laborious. Uh, but we also we keep all the organs and we sell every bit of the beast. And now we've got a very good customer base now who love our stuff. And there's not much that we're legally allowed to keep. Mm. That we're not using. So, and I did think of that last night actually when I was washing off all the salt and started the fleshing process. I mm. did think about that. It, uh, it does make you feel pretty good that you are honoring Mother Nature and the body. So, there you go. Anyway, let's get on with the show. I'm still waiting for a sample. The Mojo Radio Show.
0: We don't take ourselves too seriously.
1: <laughs> oh, thank God. This week on the show, we've got a repeat offender to the Mojo Radio Show. His, his name is Ryan Munsey. And I've got to say, of all the shows we've done over the five seasons, Ryan is probably one of the guys that I really related to the most. I so enjoyed talking to him. The guy's body is a whole brain. Ryan Munzee is the host of the Better Human Project podcast, which I highly recommend, folks. He's the author of a new book called F Your Feelings, which is about the neuroscience of performance based on our brain. He's a world-class high-performance consultant. He's a thought leader in wellness and personal development and learning and getting stuff done. And essentially, if I was going to sum up Ryan Munsey, I'd say he's a guy on a quest to find the best stuff we need to know to elevate us in life to make us better. And his whole – he's worked with Olympic athletes and Navy SEALs, entrepreneurs – people building big businesses. He's worked with a lot, but he's a student. He's terribly humble, but the guy is a really good mate of the show. We've been in touch for the last couple of years. And I said, look, come on, talk about your new book and um, share some more wisdom. So
2: Ryan, welcome back, mate. Oh, Thank you guys for having me. I'm I'm so excited to be here. I had a blast on the previous appearance and uh, you guys are a riot. So thanks just, for having me. Just to fill our listeners in, we've actually done about an hour of the interview before <laughs> we've started here, but you know, I'm sure we'll cut back to that at some stage. <laughs> Which we will play back for you all. But um, Absolutely. You, you did record that, right? I got all that.
1: Good. So mate, you're an awesome friend of the podcast and you're no stranger to podcasting yourself. In fact, you've been at it for a few years now. Uh, there's a new one in the works,
2: I hear, the Better Human Project. Is that right? Ryland was somebody that I met who was, uh, even before this idea for the Better Human Project came along, he was on board to help me with uh, media and assets for the book. He's an incredible photographer and and visual storyteller. Uh, I think that's a a much better description for what he does than just to say he's a photographer. Um, And he and I just kept having these conversations about, you know, if I'm going to start a new podcast, what should it be? And he happened to Own an RV. And uh, he said, Man, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we, you know, redid the back of it and turned it into a podcast studio? And, you know, we could, you know, together we kind of fleshed out this idea of taking the RV to these epicenters of uh, you know, influencers and amazing people and, and, and awesome humans. And, um, you know, we can interview them there and, and we can go to conferences and expos. Uh, he came to the Bulletproof conference with me last fall and, and, you know, we really started talking about the idea there. Like, you know, how cool would it be if our RV was either in the expo hall or, or even just right outside and, you know, we could have a place to sit down and have these amazing conversations. And, um, You know, as as a lot of these conversations were were going back and forth, and we're trying to think of a name for the new show and a direction. And the thing I kept coming back to was, you know, in everything that I've ever done, whether it's own a gym or or be a strength coach or write for for health and fitness magazines or nutrition, uh, even as host of the OPP. I mean, the underlying thing for me is is I want everyone I encounter to live a stronger, healthier, happier life for having crossed paths with me, and. Essentially what that boils down to is how can we all be better humans? It's this pursuit that, you know, we're all sharing. Um and and that just became the it was, was like once once that word or, or that phrase was out there, we couldn't think of anything else that was a better name for this podcast. And and the podcast is it, it, it is we are creating something that we hope is like you said, a mission or a movement. It, it, we want this to be so much bigger than just a podcast or a radio show that people listen to. You know, we have this RV and we take it around and and we're building community. And, um, you know, we really started asking ourselves what, what are other people, what are other podcasts not doing? And how can we innovate and elevate the world of podcasting? Because, you know, I, I, again, as we were saying earlier, I mean, there are, Um, There are so many podcasts out there and we didn't want to have just another show and we didn't want to be more noise. We wanted some kind of a voice and we wanted to be able to, uh, you know, for us, it was we want to be able to make an impact because when we start thinking about a lot of these shows are... Uh, helping people get better. How do we improve uh, our brain? How do we improve our health? How do we improve our relationships or our fitness or nutrition? And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm a huge believer in you know, this commitment or this responsibility that we all have to you know constantly seek knowledge and growth and evolution. But the next question is, what are we doing with that? Are we just collecting it to collect trophies or books on a bookshelf um, or are we actually doing something with it? Are we taking that and and helping others? And that's where the be better and then do better part of the Better Human Project comes in. So, you know, we want to highlight individuals who not only are delivering actionable information to our listeners, but are Running charities or uh, doing research that may change the world, and then not only are we just telling their stories, but we're giving our audience a way to get involved, and and we're building bridges for people to um, to get involved to help others and to make impact, and and we're we're trying to craft this in a way that it is a movement. Um, I think an analogy that that I think makes sense to me is sort of like paleo, right? So there's a huge paleo conference every year here in the U.S. It's in Austin, Texas, paleo effects. And everyone who goes to this thing, uh, some people are speakers, some are writers, some people have food products, some people um, make drinks or coffee, or there's a paleo magazine. Um, The point being that there are so many different ways for people to get involved. uh, But the the underlying theme that, that ties everybody together is that they all have this passion and investment in ancestral living or this, this ancestral way of going through life. Um, and that's what we want. We want to create this mission, this movement around being better humans. And we want to allow our audience or the people who get behind this movement to figure out what that means for them. And, um, you know, we don't want it to be stymied or, or pigeonholed from the beginning by, defi- us, by us arbitrarily defining what it is or has to be. That's it, Rob. We're buying a tour bus. <laughs> That's
1: it. I want I a want tour bus. I want full T-shirts. We'll eventually get some groupies. I want a coffee machine in the back. We want a kombucha on tap. I mean, I can see the whole, the Airstream caravan, the Mojo That's Radio it. Show on the side, and you can drive. It'll be red, yeah. and then you can drive at the big red bus, called the Mojo Radio Show. It's, it's done. It's, 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 I'm going to make it happen. Okay, cool. Right? I'm in. I'm not having Munzee with his RV. <laughs> out. We're going we're gonna to go to the next level. Well, let's be honest. An RV is not very rock and roll. <laughs> you know, the tour, the tour bus is iconic, you know. <laughs> (laughs) I think what you're doing is way cool because I've heard people say to you already, are you bringing the RV to Wellness FX? Are you bringing the RV to this event? And I think what you're doing has really elevated yourself and I think it just proves to me that podcasts, and it's it's pretty funny, um, Ryan, over the last probably three months, I think I've received six books in the mail from people who sent books to me saying, here's my new book, uh, would it be appropriate for me to come on the show to talk about it? And of course, I read the book. We get a mind, have a chat and stuff, which is great. And they're terrific uh, talent. But what do, what's dawned on me is, if I go back to our old radio days, we would receive an album or a book or a uh, back in the day a video of a new show that's coming out wanting to do a promotion, because radio back then was one of the you know key three mediums you'd use. But podcasting seems to have become its own monster now, where. People are now seeing it as in radio, television, press, blogs, and podcasts as being a way to promote themselves.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And I would argue that it's even more targeted, uh, podcasts are even more targeted than radio ever was. Because, you know, you think back 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, you know, there were there were fewer channels, fewer stations. So you have this really wide demographic listening to any given radio station where today, if I can get on a podcast that talks about mental health and, you know, the topic of my book is Mastering Your Mind, you know, that that is nearly 90 to 100% of that audience is interested in what I have to talk about. So you, you, you know, you bring up a really good point that, you know, using podcasts for uh, marketing Um, especially a a book or, you know, your own show or, you know, whatever it might be. But, you know, it it is an insanely targeted audience if you can get on the right shows.
1: I I just want to head back to, to you, your show and your book, Ryan. And something I was curious about to start us off is you said that you were terrified of your own mortality can you explain that for us? What what is the fear for you around your mortality?
2: Damn, you got me with a deep question. Um, <laughs> as as far back as I can remember, uh, I can I can actually give myself a panic attack if I think about what it would be like to no longer exist, and. I guess like I'll try to paint a picture of what that looks like, but I've just, I've always kind of had this, I don't know if you want to call it a wild or a vivid imagination, but I think it's, I think it's human nature for us to wonder, you know, what happens after we die. And, um, you know, I think that wonder is one of the reasons that religion has, you know, been such a powerful thing in the history of the world. You know, it gives people something to believe in and kind of helps people alleviate some of those fears if if that is how they choose to believe um but you know i I think back to like you know i guess the the way that those thoughts go in my head you know is you know what was it like in the year 1200 or 1600 or you know name any year you know prior to your birth and and i don't know and and then once i died like it's going to be like that for eternity Maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't know. We don't know. Um, and it just, I guess the only way I can describe it is I just, I have this irrational fear of that void of, of ceasing to exist. Um, and, you know, I know once that, well, I don't know, but we assume or I think that once I cross that threshold, I no longer have the opportunity to do anything that I could do while I'm alive. And I guess that's what terrifies me is that at some point, you know, nothing will be possible. But right now, while I'm alive, anything is. And uh I don't know. Does that does that kind of answer your question yeah, or, or give you some insight does. into the the craziness in my head?
1: Yeah, and I want to take I'll put on the indicator for a second, take an off route, then come back onto this freeway again. Um Two or three weeks ago, we interviewed David Heinemir Hansen, who was amazing, and he started 37 Signals, which became Basecamp. He wrote the book Rework, and then his recent book is called Remote. Incredible mind. And one of the things that I asked about at the end of the show is he uses negative visualisation as a powerful tool for him to learn and to perform. Now this is a guy who went from having no driver's license to being on the podium at Le Mans, the greatest endurance race in the world for motorsport in 10 years. And we broke down how he goes about learning performance, getting rid of the negative voices, the, the negative defaults. And one of the things he used was negative visualization. And we talked through that. And I'm just wondering, is there a link between what he talks about And your fear of mortality in that by having a negative visualization, that's a pretty extreme version of it. It drives you to do what you want to do, alleviate the negative voices and to get after it, as opposed to putting
2: it aside and thinking there's time for that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not familiar with the exact methods that he's used or or what he mentioned, but I mean, I, I think for me, it just gives me incredible perspective. You know, the other way to uh, that I kind of arrive at that perspective is, you know, to think about the scale of the universe and, you know, galaxies and our solar system and, you know, then zooming way into planet Earth and, you know, the United States or, or North America and then the United States and then, you know, the state that I live in and then me and it's like, I am so insignificant in the grand scheme of things and, and we all are, but in our heads, you know, the, we, we have a way of kind of going through our daily lives as as if the world revolves around us. And, um, you know, anytime that I can give myself myself that perspective or, or that check, um, you know the the things that most people worry about all the time are truly insignificant and and inconsequential and and among those are like you said those negative voices and and the uh, the, the narratives that we tell ourselves and um, yeah I, I'd be willing to bet that there's some overlap in you know what he did and, and and what I'm talking about.
1: I have always admired the way you attack and challenge what we know to be true. To say is there something we could be thinking about or experimenting with in order to be better. And morning rituals, routines have had a lot of media coverage, particularly on podcasts for the last, I don't know, five years or so. And one thing I heard you say, which I actually had not heard talked about before, is you said you changed your morning routine, your morning rituals to write the book. And I was just talking to somebody recently and I mentioned the fact that you had said this and I went, wow, I've never really heard anybody talk about that. I, I would be curious to hear Ryan's perspective of what did you change and how did you change it in order to write the book? And then did you keep that routine or have you gone back to what you had as your original
2: ritual? <laughs> you know what, that's, yeah, that, that that is interesting. So I changed, the reason I changed my morning routine um, when writing the book was because I needed to get in front of the computer faster and with what I would call momentum. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, prior to that focused period of writing the book, um, you know, I spent my time, my, my work day was pretty hectic and it was, you know, dictated by incoming emails and calls and, um, for that reason, my morning routine was something that needed uh, to ground me, calm me, uh, to be used to center and, and sort of balance. So it was a very slow, um, intentional, and um, kind of inward-focused balanced, balancing type of routine. And I think the thing to point out here is that all of us should seek a more Morning routine that meets our goals for the day. Um, everything we do is goal and context dependent, you know, from the way we train to the way we eat um, to our morning routines. So, again, prior to writing the book, my morning routine was something that I used to slow myself down, relax, kind of be parasympathetic. And uh, because most of my day was pretty stressful. Now, that changed in the six weeks that I was very intense in writing the book, um, it, I made a post, you know, the day the book came out that it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I think I also alluded to the quote from Hemingway where he says, you know, there's nothing to writing. You just sit at the typewriter and bleed. And that is so true. It was, it was agony. And, you know, I think a lot of people can, uh, can relate to like writer's block or, or the frustration of, you know, I want to write this thing or I want to do this thing, but, but I don't, I can't get the words to come out and, you know, sitting at the computer and writing all day was brutal for me. Um, I have ADD, I'm antsy. I just wanted to get up and scream and pull my hair out and walk and just get away from the computer and get out of the house. And um, for that reason, my morning routine had to be something that was incredibly short and gave me what i like i said i call it momentum or or uh if you're a fan of jocko willink it's it's earning some of those first victories of the day so i would wake up um i was using exogenous ketones at that point so i would wake up i would drink some exogenous ketones which took all of 2 minutes and i would go in the bathroom i would take a cold shower and within 20 minutes of waking up, I'd be at the computer sitting down, um, with a glass of water and it was, all right, game on. I used Pomodoros for, uh, like the next eight hours, um, each day, depending on what my schedule was and what I had going on each day, I would write for between six and 10 hours. And the idea was that the morning routine was friction-free. It got me in front of the computer as fast as possible and, you know, doing the the cold shower, I mean, it's no matter how many times you do it, it's still uncomfortable. You, You still don't want to, um, you know, expose yourself to cold water. Uh, so, you know, doing this thing that, you know, voluntarily doing something that is uncomfortable or, or undesirable. Um, and then, and then once you get through it, it's sort of exhilarating and you have this kind of, um, physiological change. It made it easier to, um, do something else that is uncomfortable, which in that case was sit down and write a book.
1: Did you always write, so having ketones, did you always write in ketosis? Is that the reason for doing what you did, then cold shower? Is that is that what you were working toward?
2: I like to be in ketosis, but what I had found over the year previous um, through some different experiments, um, The ketogenic diet and being in ketosis was incredible for mental performance, but long-term, my physical performance suffered. Um, But again, for that six-week sprint of writing the book, I was in ketosis. And as a part of that, I was using exogenous ketones in the morning. Um, I was fasting uh, or doing intermittent fasting, so I wouldn't eat breakfast until... um, you know, at least two to four hours of writing. Uh, And then I would usually go train. And then after lifting, I'd come back and write for another three to four hours.
1: Your Pomodoro, what was the periods you had on and off? Were you doing on for 20, off for two? What was the the breakdown of that specifically?
2: I did 25 and five. And then every four rounds of that, I would take a 30-minute break. And was this... uh, Man, this is going to be a three-hour show because there's so
1: much I've got in my head to ask you about. Um, so settle in, Robo, get some more coffee, brother. Um, the During this period, is this prior to the – now let me set this up. You did an experiment for 30-odd days on the carnivore diet. I need you to explain the carnivore diet. What was your thinking behind it and was this period of writing the book prior to after or during your carnivore diet?
2: Yeah, so let's go easiest. The answers first. Um, the carnivore diet experiment was the month of November, and the six weeks of intense writing was late July until uh, early September. So there were a few different experiments that popped up on my radar during that time, and I um, am am happy that I had the discipline to say no. I'm going to push these off and and do these experiments after I finish the book. Um, So I knew that what I had set up in terms of a routine and a diet and training was conducive to being in the mental state that I needed to be in to finish the book. So I wasn't going to do anything that messed with that, sort of like uh, baseball players and their superstition around playoffs or something like that. But um, the carnivore diet showed up on my radar sometime last summer. Uh, I was introduced to Sean Baker And if you're not familiar with the carnivore diet, it is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It is the opposite of a vegan diet. It is nothing but meat. (laughs) That sounds like me. (laughs) You're going to love this, Rose. This This is a
1: serious, serious diet. Go ahead, man.
2: Yeah, no, it, it is, it's real. And, you know, I saw this guy and he's posting pictures on Twitter and, and Instagram and, you know, he's going to like in and out Burger and and buying like, you know, 10 or 15 burgers and he's eating just the, just the patties, no bun or, or lettuce or anything. And um, my first response was like, yeah, this guy's a nut and it's just, it's crazy. Well, about a week went by and for that week, I couldn't stop thinking about it like man, this that I, that dude, he's such an idiot. Like, why is he doing this? And you know, the more I thought about it, the more I went back and I checked him out, I looked into it and it turns out this guy's an orthopedic surgeon. Um just because someone's a doctor doesn't mean they necessarily understand nutrition, but being an orthopedic surgeon, he does have a certain amount of understanding of the human body, you know, that the average person might not have. And then I realized that there were all these people involved in this conversation and that he wasn't the person who really, um, he didn't start this thing. He just somehow found himself as the voice of this movement. And people have been doing carnivore for years. And and there were quite a few people that I encountered in in blog posts or, or other tweets who had been carnivore for Five years, 10 years. There was one lady who uh, she had infertility issues and couldn't get pregnant. And then she switched to a carnivore diet. Now she's got three kids. Um, so, you know, you can't argue that there was a positive physiological change in her body after making that switch. There were several other Uh, nutritionists and and really, really intelligent people who were making compelling arguments that countered all of my original objections to this way of eating. You know, I I had the same thoughts initially that most people do. What about fiber? What about the microbiome? Don't we need micronutrients from vegetables? And, you know, it was really interesting to learn that organ meats have greater micronutrient Value than any vegetable. Uh, You know, we can get more of the vitamins and minerals from uh, liver or heart or kidney than kale or spinach or broccoli. Um, You know, then there was uh, somebody who presented the argument that all of those vegetables, all of the common vegetables that we eat, were actually cultivated by man, and they all can trace their origins back to uh, the wild mustard seed plant. So, had man not intervened with nature um, and and crossbred these plants, we wouldn't have kale or broccoli or cauliflower. So, you know, when we talk about these things being natural and organic, you know, are they really, or did man, you know, cause these things by, you know, crossbreeding and and cross pollination? Um, And, you know, all of these things, I'm, as you said, I'm totally comfortable questioning what I know and what we think we believe. So, you know, I can, I can read all of these things and I don't necessarily have to believe them, but I'm just pointing these all out as, you know, these are things that led me to eventually say, I've got to try this. Uh, I've got to know for myself if I can feel as good as all these people are claiming, you know, my degree is in nutrition. So, um, you know, and I don't remember if we talked about this or not, not on my previous you know appearance here with you guys but you know when I was in school I disagreed with a lot of what we were taught in terms of nutrition because what is taught in nutrition classes does not match with what we were taught in the science classes of you know how the human body works so you know we had these uh, I mentioned one of these these other people who were making compelling arguments um, in favor of more meat as bipedal beings, humans evolving to stand on two feet, we have a much shorter digestive tract, and uh, this is also something that has uh, given rise to a much larger brain. If you compare that to uh, a gorilla or a chimpanzee you 're going to see a much smaller brain and a much larger digestive tract um, you know so when people use the argument that you know gorillas eat lettuce, well, they also have you know m- significantly larger digestive systems to process those plant matter and much smaller brains. You know, cows and other other animals or organisms have multiple stomachs. Uh, They're designed to eat plant matter. And, uh, you know, if you look at the teeth in a human being, we have teeth that are clearly designed to cut and shred and rip flesh. Um, You know, there's a lot of anthropological evidence that when we as a species began to eat meat, especially uh, marrow, that our brains significantly increased in size and abilities. So there's just a lot of evidence to support this. Now, the one thing I will also add is that there's no archaeological evidence of a purely carnivorous society. There's no archaeological evidence of a purely vegan society. I think humans have always been opportunistic feeders at any point in human history. If we encountered uh, an animal that we could kill and eat, we would have. If we encountered a fig tree or blueberries that you know didn't kill us, we would have eaten them. Uh, I think at the end of the day, our modern society is at odds with our biology, uh, meaning that our biology is something that has evolved and prepared for times of scarcity, and having to move quite a bit to acquire food. Uh, that's been our reality up until 100 years ago, uh, or maybe even less, depending on where in the world you live. Today, most people can walk a quarter of a mile or less and be at a convenience store or a Walmart or a grocery store or whatever. Um so all that being said, I, you know, I just, I've always been this person who's seen myself and my body as a laboratory. I want to experiment. I want to experience uh, these things. And, you know, people were saying they had great energy and hunger levels went down and joint pain went away and they were getting stronger. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'll sign up to eat burgers and bacon and steak <laughs> for a month and see what happens. Um, and, and at that point, there was not a lot of blood work uh, being collected. Uh, Even this guy, Sean Baker, who was sort of the face, didn't have blood work. And uh, at some point, uh, I interviewed him for for the Better Human Project in uh, mid-December. And at some point before I interviewed him, he was a guest on Joe Rogan and kind of got blasted at that point for not having blood work. Now, since then, he's gotten blood work and it's been shared on some of the bigger podcasts and and it is out there. But, you know, he also, um, one of the things that really drew me to him and and his approach to this was he wanted to poke holes in it. When I did it, I was very upfront. I wanted to poke holes in it. Um, I did blood work. Um, I did microbiome testing. I wanted to find out reasons that this was, um, Not going to work. I wanted to find out, you know, do we really need fiber? Do we really need micronutrients from greens? You know, we think we do. Everybody, you know, if you went out on the street and you asked people, they'd be like, oh, yeah, Uh, everybody says you do. You do. Well, do we? We don't know. And I'm okay with that. so yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I'll stop talking. What what other questions do you guys have about carnivore and the experiment?
1: No, it's interesting because I heard the interview with Joe Rogan uh, with that um, orthopedic surgeon, and and Joe was blowing out. This guy had been doing it for a year or well over a year or something. He said, "Look, I feel great." And Joe said, "But what's the what's the data behind it?" And he had none. Right. But then when I heard you had done it and you had some guys on the show on the Better Human Project who talked to you about the carnivore diet and you actually had the blood work done, you said you felt good. Your blood work was all terrific. And then I thought you said you were going back on it again because your partner wanted to do it as well. So it's obviously something that has some merit.
2: Yeah. And I mean- Like you pointed out, my blood work was immaculate. My inflammation levels were incredibly low. Um, My cholesterol ratio was, uh, I believe it was either 3.4 or 3.6. I can't remember. Whichever one mine was, the other number is actually the standard. And at that point... Uh, if it's 3.4, 3.6, you have half of the average risk for coronary disease or a cardiovascular event. Um, so, you know, despite the fact that I was eating nothing but meat and bacon, um, you know, I, I had half the risk of coronary incidents, you know, compared to the average person. Um, all, all of my levels were good. Uh, good cholesterol was up. Testosterone went up. Um, strength was up in the gym. I felt great. Now, I will say, you know, if anybody's thinking about doing it, days three through 10 were awful. There's something called the carnivore flu, and it is real. Uh, those days were a struggle. And I remember telling my wife uh, in, somewhere in the middle of that period that had I not put this thing out into the internet, that I was going to do it for a full month. I probably would have quit. Um, but once I, and I've talked to a few other people who have done the experiment after I did, and um, they felt the exact same thing. But for every single one of us, somewhere around day 10 to 15, this, I, I guess the way I would describe it is the system comes online. And every single day, you just start feeling better and better and better. And um, I think that that just shows you that, that the human body can and will adapt to almost anything, uh, which I think is an important, important point to make. Um, but yeah, my blood work was great. My microbiome test came back, and uh, prior to the experiment, I actually had um, done the same test, and I had good test results, except for one. Negative strain. And at the end of the carnivore diet, that negative strain was gone. Um, it's a dysbiotic flora that had gone away. And uh, I had, you know, full population of all of the good bacteria, despite the fact that I wasn't eating any fiber or any uh, sauerkraut or probiotic type foods. So that was interesting. Um, like I said, inflammation was low. And yeah, I, I mean, there's a there are a lot of people who are intrigued by this and and experimenting with it. My wife is uh, she's a physician and she wanted to try it, um, and so we 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 did it together for the month of January. Um, I am doing it again. I'm probably it's probably been three three and a half weeks since I've had anything that wasn't meat. Um, yeah, I, I I'll go back and forth like maybe one month on one month off. Um, I I just I can't I can't argue. With the way I feel on it i'm I'm not convinced um that it's the best way to eat long term, but I know I feel good when I do it so I
1: think the the thing for me that sits underneath this conversation for the last few minutes is just it's about feeling good, and we should always as somebody said, we should always be in beta. So we should always be testing to say, is there something that can help us feel better? And um, I just think this is fascinating. It opens up our mind to possibilities and people should investigate if they're interested.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And And with that look at the potential downside. So one of the things that I've done differently with carnivore compared to uh, at least what I see on the internet is that I've eaten a ton of organ meats and whether that's liver, heart, kidney, uh, I'm not sure if you guys can get it there, but U.S. Wellness Meats is uh, a website here in the U.S. and, and they have some great organ sausages, liverwurst and head cheese that make it really easy to eat these organs that have the micronutrients that most people would assume you are deficient in when you eat an all-meat diet. So, um, you know, I I did look at the potential deficits in this particular way of eating and tried to guard against them. And I think that's an approach that we can bring into any endeavor. You know, what what are the potential downsides, and how can we mitigate risk? We're talking fish as well, right? Aren't we? Yeah, I ate a lot of wild-caught salmon. Yeah. I was gonna say those oils would be awesome, right? Um, yeah, but you know, even those, uh it, even that was still really lean, and I found myself having to add some sort of um oil or animal fat to that to right. get it um, you know, higher in fat than protein. Yeah, okay. Which is and, and that's something to, something else to point out with this is that most people immediately jump to the conclusion that this is an all protein diet. It's not. Um most most people who do the carnivore diet the sort of the gold standard food is a ribeye steak which is a, which is about 60% of the calories coming from fat so you know it, when i set mine up i said all right well if i'm not going to eat an, eat a ribeye i need to try to at least mimic that macronutrient breakdown so for the entirety of my experiment and, and even now on carnivore it's 60% of my calories come from fat. So it's basically a ketogenic diet. And and I've uh, tested throughout these experiments and, you know, I'm in moderate to low level ketosis. Now, if we flip to the book,
1: Ryan, something I heard you say, which I was curious about, you said that when you read a book, you're always thinking in the back of your mind, what's the author trying to say? So, If I am reading your book and I'm to understand what's Ryan Munsey trying
2: to say, what were you trying to say with this new book? I like that question. I think I want people to understand that either we are controlling our mind or it is controlling us. And if we can bring a conscious awareness to this, then it affords us the choice and the opportunity to guide the ship, meaning our life, in the direction that we want to go. Uh, if we don't, if we choose to be a passive participant, then our feelings and these underlying kind of subconscious ways of uh, of operating are going to steer the ship for us. And um, if we, uh, if 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 that's the way our life goes, then it will be no coincidence that we fail to uh, achieve the things that we want to achieve in our life.
1: Let's, let's put some of this to practice, Ryan. I heard a great quote. Somebody said, don't ask me for a new idea when you haven't used the last one yet. (laughs) Yeah. And everyone's seeking the next idea, like the next podcast, the next blog, the next hack. What's the next thing yet? Many of us haven't used what we just had. So, People finish this interview, they're going to take a a bunch of stuff from you, no doubt. Explain to me where states and traits, which is an important element of the book, somebody finishes the podcast, closes their phone or their iPod or their desktop, explain to me how states and traits work for me to put into action what Ryan shared on this actual episode.
2: Yeah, so... uh I'll first define states and traits. States are short-term transient ways of being. A trait is a long-term quality or characteristic. Um, and then I also use the example of weather versus climate. So, you know, weather is the the state. That's what's happening now. Climate is uh, the, the trait, the thing that is kind of this overarching, uh, more often than not, this is how things are. And that concept came into being because i spoke at the biohacker summit last year in sweden and being that it was at a biohacker convention i tailored it to biohackers but you know in this in this world of biohacking and and even you know in a broader sense of society today. We're always looking for, you know, the the thing that we can do now, the the smart pill that we can take or the hack that we can do or the the morning routine that we can do so that we can be, you know, in the right state to write that book today or, or to do whatever it is that we want to do today or right now. And you know, if you listen to this podcast and you get fired up and you have these things that you want to implement as soon as you close your computer or turn off your phone, that's a state. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But realize that it is transient and that it won't last. On the other hand, if we can seek to develop traits that will transcend moments and become characteristics and ways of defining us and and how we move through life on a a larger scale. Um, I I think there's so much more value to be had and gained from seeking to develop these traits rather than chasing states. And, you know, the book provides quite a few what I call tools that we can use that will simultaneously change our state. For the now, but also help us develop these traits for the long term. Uh, increasing awareness and um, you know, developing um, you know this this ability to stay aligned with our values and you know to be better decision makers. But you know, in terms of answering your question, you know, how can how can a listener implement this right away? I think it's it's bringing awareness to the state that you're in when you have this. Uh, what what most people would call a high level of motivation, but it's really not motivation. It's 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 alignment. Like in that moment, like if you go to a, a conference or an event or or a concert, and everything just feels right, and and you feel invincible and you feel like there's nothing you can't do, um, you, you're you're actually really aligned with you know your values and what you want. Um, and I would encourage people to use that moment of high alignment to define those values and to come back to them frequently and use them to guide the habits that you build into your life, uh, that we build into our lives, so that you know we can then work to make these things traits um, so that they become the norm uh, rather than the exception. Robbo Munzeegold. Oh!
1: Munzee gold. That's going on, that's going on, that's going on, that's going on on the wall of the studio. More Munzee gold. Straight straight for the RV. I was going to say it's mana from the RV. Mana. Mana Hawaiian. Did you know that, Ryan, that mana is Hawaiian spirit or Hawaiian mojo? So you've got Ryan... Mana. I
2: like it. I like it. We've got we do have a podcast recorded that'll come out sometime next month with um, one of the co-founders uh, from Olakai and that is a Hawaiian footwear company and uh, oh, Really? We, yeah, we we learned a lot about Hawaiian culture in that episode. So
1: I love the idea of mana. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but we we spoke
2: about it a couple of weeks on go on the show. Or Gary did an interview and uh yeah, it's awesome. The Hawaiian culture is beautiful, isn't it? Ah.
1: Do you know, it's, uh, people keep, I, I, was, I was speaking in Hawaii two weeks ago, Ryan, and uh, people have asked me, how was your trip? And normally you go to a beautiful place, you go, it was great, it was beach, and it's, I mean, Hawaii, how could it not be? But the thing I keep saying to people is I learned more about the Hawaiian culture and the spirit than I have on any other trip to any country, and it was just talking to people who were driving taxis or Ubers, or people in cafes, or people I met at the gigs, and Every time I spoke to somebody, and there were generational people, uh, and in fact, we've got a, an amazing story coming up on the show with a, uh, about a guy called Eddie Aikau, who was the big wave surfer, who was the namesake for the big wave event called the Eddie Classic. And um, there's an amazing story about how he influenced you know, the last four decades of Hawaiian spirit because of his act of heroism. And... He is so true. The Hawaiian culture is so deep and beautiful It's spiritual and, man, they got mana and a lot of it's coming from the women, which I
2: think is just incredible. Yeah, and he may have actually been one of the was, – was he the guy that uh, he actually became like the, the head lifeguard or something? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So he actually came up, uh, the guy that uh, we interviewed knew him and knew of him and oh, uh, wow. talked, talked about his story. So it's it's probably very much the same type of stories. And I mean, I've got goosebumps thinking about it now. I mean, it, oh, was, me too. Yeah. Uh, it was really powerful. So yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, you go to a lot of places and, and it's, oh yeah, it was great. It was beautiful. But um, something else we learned about that uh, Hawaiian culture is that I don't know the extent to which this happened, but um, I learned that when Hawaii became a state, that the U.S. government tried to squash um, a lot of that Hawaiian culture. Um, I, I think they put in some kind of rules that you know they couldn't speak their native language and use a lot of their native words, and um, you know I think that's one of the reasons that it is. Uh, I guess you, you're, you're seeing maybe not not a um, a, a renaissance, but like a uh, uh, there, there's just been a lot of emphasis placed on preserving it and, and even trying to bring it back.
1: Now let me let me uh,
2: change the the tone here for a sec.
1: Obviously, you changed your morning routine in order to write the book because you wanted to be in the right state. Focus is a big part of that, Ryan. It's something we've probably had as, a, as an underlying thread for the last couple of years on the show. And I'd be curious at your thoughts now, having just done the book, and I know you've said that writing is not something you'd like to do. Like you, you, it doesn't it's not a natural thing for you. So obviously you had to put yourself in a state too focused to deliver the book you wanted to put out. What have you discovered about focus and the better human performance in writing this book.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good question, um, and I, I think it's important to note that you know, for me, I I do enjoy writing. I do enjoy communicating through the written word. This was the first time I'd ever tackled a project where the the totality of the project was going to be larger than what I could write in one sitting, you know, meaning that it's not a social media post, it's not a blog post, Um, and I think that's what made it really difficult. Um, I think just going through it, I've learned sort of how to systemize um, or how to better approach that particular venture in the future. Uh, If I decide to write another book, Um, I think one of the other things I learned is that the tool we use to complete that project can make it much more enjoyable. Uh, I discovered something called Scrivener. Uh, which I would highly recommend to anybody who uh, wants to write a book. Uh, I did not discover that until about halfway through the project, and um, by the time I found it, I was so fed up with Google Docs because I was already at like a hundred pages, and it was just, it was a nightmare to try to jump from you know one place to another place and to try to move things. Um, you know, if I wanted to rearrange the order, um, so you know, I I learned that. My brain operates in a way that I need to be able to zoom in and out. I need to be able to see this thing in its entirety and then be able to zoom in and see, you know, one sentence in a specific chapter. And, and if I want to, you know, grab that chapter and move it two chapters up or two chapters down, um, Scrivener made it very easy to do that. So um, I, I've always known that I'm very visual in, in the, the way that I operate and learn. And, you know, Scrivener was a tool that kind of made it easy for me to work in that way with the book. So I think, you know, if we're trying to make that something that's a little bit more tangible for for folks, it would just be understanding how your brain works um, for particular projects and then, you know, setting it, uh, setting your approach up in a way that doesn't fight with your nature or the way that you work. Um, You know, it doesn't matter. How you're uh, wired or how you tick, um, you know you can you can always uh, find a, a, a work setup that works for you. You know you don't you don't have to write like Bono or write like Stephen King. You know you can find the way that works for you.
1: Did you use any nootropics? Like did you use Siltep through that process? Because that's something we spoke about last show, and I'm I'm a fan of Siltep. Um, in fact, I've taken some Siltep this morning. Probably tell them a bit jacked up. Um, so <laughs> did you?
2: Take any neutropics, Siltep? You know, I didn't. Um actually I, I did take Siltep. I took one uh so so my dose on Siltep is one pill. And uh I took it maybe three three to four days a week. Uh, but I didn't take anything else. Um, and again, that kind of goes back to the states and traits thing. Um I, I had figured out, you know, what I could do. Um, I wanted something that was repeatable. I wanted to show up every single day in a consistent way. You know, I didn't want to be writing one day and be all jacked up. And then the next day be, you know, way below baseline. Uh, So I I just, I wanted each day to be very much the same um, in terms of, you know, what mental state I was in. Because I think that's ultimately what leads to a consistent product from start to finish in, in that particular project
1: it's if we go back to the to the head of the show you talked about the mission and purpose of what you're doing Ryan I think it's really noble or admirable that you have found your lane you know what's important for you yet I don't know I get a feeling there's a lot of people who are going through the motions day by day who haven't found that thing yet and I heard a really powerful statement you said in your show, which I loved, and I actually stopped the ute and I wrote it down in my journal that I carry in the car with me. You said, we need to consider that in whatever we do to ask the question, are we celebrated or tolerated? And I just thought that was so profound. Can you elaborate on how that works for the Better better Human Project?
2: Yeah, um, I can't take credit for that. That is... Um I, I wherever you heard me say that I hope I gave credit to Peter Diamandis but he said that You um, did. You and, did actually. And, okay. Okay. <laughs> you but, did. <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to hijack his words. Um but you know he, he was talking about uh the workplace and you know specifically you know are you tolerated merely tolerated or are you celebrated and you know in in the context of his talk it was you know about taking moonshots. And, you know, if you are going to feel comfortable, um, you know, vocalizing or or communicating some idea that you have for a moonshot at work, you've got to be in a place where, you know, people celebrate uh, you and and these huge, potentially scary um, ideas. And, you know, I think we can all relate to, you know, either a family situation or a work situation where we feel like, people are just tolerating our presence. So I'm not going to play big. Right. Um, I think in any situation where we're not as happy as we want to be, uh, or we don't feel like we're bringing our true self to the table, it is probably a scenario where we are not being celebrated. Um, you know, like I mean, let's use this podcast, for example. You know, I, I told you guys I was really excited to uh, to sit down and talk to you guys again. And part of that is because of the experience uh, that I had last time on the show. Part of that has been because of our email and, and social media correspondence in the interim. But I mean, I, I can make the argument that I feel like I am celebrated by you guys and, and when I'm on here. So I may be inclined to be more open or play bigger, if you want to use that verbiage, than on a podcast where I don't know the host and maybe it's a single host and they're a little bit less personable, right? So um, maybe that's a tangible example that, you know, we can use to help people understand that concept.
1: I just like it because it's something we can audit. Yeah. A person on their way to work today or sitting in the lunchroom can go, let's just get right down to it. Am I celebrated here? Or am I tolerated? Am I sitting on a board where the board celebrate me or tolerate me? I'm in a footy team. Am I really celebrated or do people just tolerate me? And then once you make that distinction, should it go in the tolerated part? Well, then you've got the opportunity then to make change. Exactly. And to say, well, what would I need to do immediately? So I think it's, I, I, I look, I like Peter Diamandis. We had Kyla Colbin who works for him for the Singularity University Summit, where we're fans from a distance. um, And you did credit him on the show. But I I just like it. I think it's such a great, profound
2: question to ask. Well, like you said, it it is something we can audit. And then, you know, as as I present in the book a lot, anytime we're in that... Situation. We're bringing awareness to this, and then we have the choice. You know, do I want to stay here, or you know, do I want to continue to be in a situation where I'm merely tolerated, or do I want to, you know, remove myself and and find something where, or a find a situation or a group or a tribe where I am celebrated? And more often than not, you know, the people who are most happy, the people who are most successful, the people who are doing the big things. Those are people who are in environments where they're being celebrated by those around them, not for the accomplishments, but for the things that they're doing before the public ever sees those mm. accomplishments.
1: It's a bit like um, AP, our voiceover guy. We love him dearly, but we do tolerate him. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> we celebrate lofty, but AP, we, uh, we tolerate. <laughs> Ryan, the, I think just to, to extend this conversation, uh, there are people who would hear this, but have a fixed mindset. That even though they hear it, they are fixed in their ways, or they're finding all the reasons why they wouldn't take action to execute a change. How do I? How do people identify this fixed mindset trigger, even if they don't know they have it? Is there a process that you've thought about, written about, observed? Of how people can get unstuck in some of these things to actually take action and make change.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, as soon as I hear fixed mindset, I think about the book, you know, mindset, Carol Dweck, and and you know this idea of growth mindset or or fixed mindset. And I've got a friend, Logan Gelbrick, and if you guys don't know him, I need to introduce you. And hopefully, is that Logan um, from Deuce? Yes. So I'll, I'll make an intro, and you guys can maybe oh, interview him if you want. So but good. um. He, he has a post, so he and I have this running joke that this is a book that means a lot to both of us. And um, the last time I was at Deuce, they had like eight copies of that book on the bookshelf in the office, and you know, made the, made the joke. And you know, he was telling me that it's required reading for anybody that goes through their coach's prep. And he made this post on uh, social media a few months ago, and it said something like the ultimate irony. Is when someone says uh, when someone has read that book and then they say, "I am a growth mindset person" or "I have a growth mindset," and it's one of those things where you have to stop and think about it or, or kind of examine what he's really saying there. And is, you know, if you understand growth mindset and if you read the book, you, know, you understand that 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 being of the growth mindset or buying into it means that you realize everything is always on a spectrum and, and there are no fixed points. And you know, to say I am growth-minded is in itself an absolute statement, which means that you are in a fixed position um, <laughs> and, and that you would not be open to uh, potentially exploring your own mindset. And, and so that's what makes that the ultimate irony. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Let's go. so to answer, right. So to answer your question, and I mean, that just, that, that tells you the level of, you know, the stuff that comes out of Logan's brain and, yeah, and why yeah, yeah. he's so amazing. Um, but, you know, it, I, I think to answer your question is anytime we, we start to, again, audit, like your word audit is such a great thing, you know, start to listen to the things that you say, not only out loud, but to yourself, the narrative that you tell yourself about yourself. And if you catch yourself saying, I am, or I can't, or I won't, or I'm not, you know, these are, these are fixed positions. And by definition, I mean, that's, that's part of the fixed mindset. It's my position, or, uh, I believe, or, you know, given the, uh, the information at hand, I feel as though, um, You know, like when a Peter Diamandis or a Peter Thiel or or some of these people who have just brilliant minds and are capable of of thinking in in non fixed ways, when they talk, they 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 use these things that are not absolutes, and and I think that's I think that's the way that we can audit our own. Thoughts and and words, and if we catch ourselves saying "I am" or "I'm not" or uh, thinking or speaking in absolutes, is a, is an indicator that we are thinking in fixed positions rather than uh, in terms of growth or or um, or even in a way of entertaining multiple perspectives or, or thought processes. And it's definitely a learned thing. And and it's not something that you can say, oh, I'm going to flip this switch and I'm going to be a certain way. I mean, it, it is, a, is a commitment to a lifelong practice.
1: Just on that particular point, can I take you back, Ryan, to maybe when you're a kid? Can you remember a moment when you were a kid where suddenly everything made sense to you And you started to believe that you could do what you wanted to do. Like you just talked about, it's a learned thing. It's something that we can change and and make change on. Do you remember a a moment in your childhood that changed your thinking and your mindset? I never knew
2: what I wanted to do. You know, of course, as, as a really young kid, you know, we all want to be professional athletes or, you know, astronauts or musicians or whatever, um, you know, but obviously, you know, once once I got into high school, I realized, you know, I was not going to be the next Michael Jordan. Um, but at that point, you know, when people start asking you, you know, you got to choose a school and where are you going to go to college? What are you going to do? And I never knew what I wanted to do. The only thing I knew was what I didn't want to do. And I refused. My My biggest fear was graduating college, getting a job getting married, having kids, and buying a minivan. And look, that's not to knock that life. I, it's great. And and it was great for my parents. And if that's your dream, if that's what you want to do, that's great. But the thing that scared me more than anything was you know, being in a cubicle and doing the same thing every single day and being miserable. And again, for some people, that might be a great life. Uh, but for me, that was the one thing I didn't want to do. And I think it was, you know, I, like I said, I, I I didn't know what I wanted to do. So maybe it wasn't that I had this one thing that I was really striving for, as much as it was uh, just refusing to be um, in in the way I saw it as pigeonholed or or kind of locked into um, this other you know thing that I didn't want to do. Um, so maybe it was more of like that like rebellious or or kind of outlaw approach. I, I don't know.
1: I think it's I think it's gold because. We we quite often say, what are your dreams? What do you want to do? You set this tone. But I think it's just as important to say, well, if I don't know what it is, I know where I don't want it to be. And Robbo found a piece on Netflix, which we played on the show a couple of weeks ago about John Mellencamp, how, remember that, Robbo? And the story was he was in front of the record companies, the record companies said, we're going to get you to do this and cut your hair and get you to that. And he said, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but what I certainly did know is what I don't want to be, right? It was more about his name. They, they He signed the record contract and they showed him the record cover and obviously he was born, his name, when he was born, his family named him John J. Mellencamp. And when they showed him the record cover for the first album, it said Johnny Cougar. And he went, what's going on? And they went, well, we can't, we can't market John Mellencamp, but we can market Johnny Cougar.
2: <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> and that was like, well, that's not what that's not what I want to do. And they said, well, either you want to have a record or you want to go back to digging holes like you were, you know, twelve weeks ago. So he had to make the decision. Right. Just, um, I'm very respectful of your time, Ryan. It's it, uh, it's a couple of quick things before we go. One of the chapters of sure. the book that's really interesting that I don't think people consider, and. I don't hear it talked about a lot is the gut, but not in terms of microbiome and the health of the gut. But what we don't think about is the thinking part of the gut and how it's our second or, in fact, in fact, you say it could be the first brain. Can you just give us an executive summary of what we're going to discover in the book about our gut and the ability to think?
2: Yeah, so it, this was really interesting to sort of dig into and, you know, the the brain and the central nervous system um, as we evolve, um, you know, as a developing human, uh, this. Central nervous system actually arises from the enteric nervous system, which is uh, the visceral organs in our gut and um, you know in an, in an embryo or in a fetus, it is this enteric nervous system that develops first so there are some scientists that argue you know that it is the first brain rather than a second brain um, you know there's also some archaeological um, evidence uh, that shows that once we discovered how to cook food that we were able to derive, I think the number is 16% or maybe 16 times more calories uh, or more energy from the foods that we were eating. So if we were able to derive more energy uh, from the foods that we were eating, especially a number that is that significant, we were then able to spend less time worried about or in search of uh, or or trying to acquire food and you know that allowed us to spend more time um on behaviors and activities outside of searching for food so um you know there's an argument in, in certain branches of science and, and among some researchers that you know that Part of evolution is what gave rise to uh, the higher levels of thought and the executive function uh, in our brain is this, um, this fact that we could derive more energy from our food and our meals by cooking it, um, which is an interesting concept because if you actually step back and you think about it, I don't know of any other organism on, the, on this planet that cooks their food. You know we've we've discovered that you know certain animals can use tools to get food or or acquire food, but uh, but nobody's cooking them. And you know maybe that's the reason that no other animal has evolved in terms of mental capacities the way humans have. Maybe it's not. Uh, but it's an interesting line of arguing and and thinking. Um, so you know that's a portion of what's in this chapter, but um, you know, we'll also explore how, uh, the gut is innervated by the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve, um, is, uh, the, the 10th cranial nerve. It connects the, the visceral organs with the brain and, um, vagal tone is synonymous with heart rate variability. And there's research showing that greater vagal tone or higher HRV is associated with greater emotional resiliency, um. I like to describe emotional resiliency as uh, bandwidth. So we're familiar with bandwidth in terms of internet capacity, and you know that that is a a finite amount, a finite capacity to deal with stuff. And um, you know, as we explore this in the book, we find out that most of the parasympathetic activities that we would associate with recovery—meditation, yoga, breath work. These are all activities that increase uh, the time that we're in parasympathetic states, which is rest and digest or feed and breed. And in doing so, uh, we can elevate HRV or elevate vagal tone. Again, those terms are synonymous. uh, And that leads to greater emotional resiliency, better decision-making. And if you want to test that, go one night without sleep and watch how your emotional resiliency or your emotional bandwidth goes to shit the next day. Uh, interestingly, sleep is one of the most powerful things we can do to um, you know, increase HRV.
1: Yeah, it's just something I did not hear talked about a lot. I mean, people don't, I don't think there's enough work done on educating us that the food controls our mood, our energy, clarity of thought,
2: our emotions. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know, I, I gave this book uh last fall to a few beta readers and you know one of them kind of said something about, you know, this this theory everything is everything and uh I, I tried to weave that into the book in some of the edits and rewrites and um I think that's one of the things that fascinated me as I set out to do the research and and began writing this is that there's so many things it's just it's all interconnected. you, know, you hear people in the nutrition world and and you know if somebody has a food first approach to health then it all revolves around food and if somebody's fitness first then it all revolves around your working out or it all revolves around sleep no they're all interrelated it, and none of these things are uh indistinguishable from from the next in terms of um you know being a fully integrated uh, complete better human do you see we don't do that either. that's that's such an interesting thing
1: is we don't map that on a wall and say, what are the ingredients? And then how will I build rituals or habits around those ingredients? Because we right. all, isn't it funny? We don't right. seem to map it that way. Well,
2: I think part of that is, you're right. And and I think one of the most prominent reasons that we see that is uh it's it's what sells right like the the guy the guy who's fitness first has to sell the fitness program or or the woman who's you know food first has to sell the diet program and you know we live in this world of you know this is the tool this is the one thing you need to do you got to do kettlebell workouts this month or uh you know you need to do this juice cleanse next month and it's all about selling things and um not not everything, but I mean if you just look around and, and watch you know, watch TV or the news or the magazines, I mean, it's all pushing like this thing or, or I mean, it's all about the ads that, you know, sponsor the that they get the magazines printed or that, you know, keep the radio shows on the ra- on the radio. And that's I think that's one of the reasons that, that podcasting has become so huge in the last five years is because we can get away from all of that. We can just talk about truths. Yeah, and if you take God like Logan who uh,
1: from Deuce Gym? The one thing that has really elevated him in terms of what he does its it's as much about the mindset, it is, is about the workout itself and the nutrition and the rest. Like, he, he is a, a true, let's the wrong word say holistic practitioner, but he is a big picture thinker. Where it's and it's community. I mean, they've he's built an amazing community and it's being of service and all these things wrapped up as opposed to being just fitness, just strength, just food, just microbiome, just sleep, um, and it becomes an opinion leader. So I I think that's – so this has been – obviously, we've been looking forward to this for for months since we made contact. You agreed to come back on. So firstly, thank you for your time, mate. And secondly, where do people now track you down, the podcast, the book, you personally, the work you're doing? Where are you sending everybody?
2: Yeah, so – Uh, My personal website is ryanmuncie.com and um, the book, Fuck Your Feelings, uh, is available on Amazon. I hope to get a few signed copies um, to be able to have on the website um, at some point. And on social media, um, I prefer Instagram. So it's at ryanmuncie with an underscore uh, at the end of that um and then the the podcast the new show is better human project and we've got an instagram account for that betterhumanproject.org. and that is also the website
1: it's been great mate it's been so nice to hear you and catch up and be asking some questions have been sitting in the back of my mind the show is terrific i think the work you're doing the whole idea with the rv the projects you've got that are coming up um will be terrific so uh Good on you, mate. Thank you.
2: Guys, it's, it's been a blast and uh, anytime, uh, I'm, I'm happy to come back. I love chatting with you guys. The Mojo Radio
1: Show. After five seasons of this show, you know one thing that I really, really enjoy? What's that, Darren? It's getting back people like Ryan Munsey because the first conversation is always so engaging and you come away with so much, with this head full of stuff, and then just the chance to sit down with them again and have another chat is a good thing. I really enjoy that. I thought you were going to say, the good thing they want to come back. <laughs> well, that's always a plus. <laughs> anyway, all right, let's, uh, let's keep this little shindig rolling. We are running a conest here on the Mojo Radio Show, folks. You can come and have dinner with a previous guest, a guy who was on the show only a couple of weeks ago called Darren Oldclass. He is a brand strategist, an award-winning brand strategist, and he spoke about marketing and brand and his brand-new book called This Way, Please?, when we closed the show, for those who are new to our show a number of weeks ago, he said, Well, I'd like to catch up with you guys and buy you dinner. We went, sweet. We're in free <laughs> steak and a beer. It's on. Doseki. Hello, our friends of Doseki. And he said, Well, why don't you bring some listeners? So we are running a little contest. If you, the listener, would like to come and join us, the hosts. Of the Mojo Radio Show and Darren for dinner. It'll be around an hour, an hour and a half. It'll be in Sydney at a nice restaurant somewhere that serves Doseki. You can sit down, and Darren's happy for you to pick his brain over dinner, and he's paying, (laughs) pick his brain on your brand, your business, your marketing, your promotion, your PR. So this is, this is a wonderful chance to get with an expert. It'll cost you nothing except a cab fare or an airfare. In fact, mate, I had somebody enter the competition already mm. who comes from north, well, well north of Sydney, and he said, mate, I want to come to the dinner. I'll pay my own way there, and I'll pay for my own dinner. Oh, Wow. And I said, good. So uh, we have had a good response to this. It's quite humbling, actually, the guys that want to come and hang out. We'll, we'll bring a recorder. What I'm thinking, actually, Robo, is yes. we might actually meet at WeWork in town. Ooh. And I'll book a room at WeWork so everybody can, you can see it, everyone can see WeWork, yep. hang out there for half an hour, record some stuff mm. where it's quiet. Mm. And then we can wobble down to dinner somewhere. What do you think? That's a great idea. And that Mm. means I can sit back and have a few joseckis and not have to worry about recording Ah. anything at dinner. Ah. Perfect. And noise and stuff. Beautiful. Good. So anyway, if you want to enter... Info at themojoradioshow dot We can't make it any easier. Or go to our website Mojo Radio Show.com, Or do we still have Facebook? We do have Facebook. Yeah, we okay, are on so Facebook. go to Facebook and do that. Or you can Twitterize us. Just get in touch with us. Slip a note under the door. Hi, it's Lane Beachley here, seven times world surfing champion. I've seen a lot of goofy footers and maybe a few coops in my lifetime, but Robbo and Gary from the Mojo Radio Show—they definitely taste cake. So here is a beautiful article. And it reads, lonely Japanese elderly are shoplifting in search of the community and stability of conversation. What are you reading? No, this is true. (laughs) This, This is fascinating. An elderly Japanese shoplifter was picked up. Yeah. And when interviewed said, I was caught, taken to the police station and questioned by the sweetest police officer. He was so kind. He listened to everything I wanted to say. I felt I was being heard for the first time in my life. Wow. In the end, he gently tapped me on the shoulder and said, I understand you were lonely, but don't do this again. So here's, here's what I think that article means, and this is the close to the show. This is Gary Birtwistle's social commentary number one. It is. I mean, we, we can all find one person today. I don't care if it's a taxi driver, a bus driver, a coffee shop barista, a doorman, a cleaner, a delivery guy, a bank teller, or just an old elderly person, a guy in the lunchroom. But have a good chat. And the difference with this that I thought was lovely is ask questions, open-ended questions, sit, lean in, and truly listen to every word that person talks about. And be curious. I mean, draw out their story by asking questions within there. So once they give you an answer, ask a question about that answer because that's the true way of showing that you are listening and interested in somebody. And sadly, it's an art that is going away today and you get elderly people shoplifting to get picked up just to have someone to talk to. I just go, that's just crazy. And everyone's got these beautiful stories. Some of the stories I hear in the back of taxis just absolutely astonish me. In fact, we've got a world-class author coming on the show, a novelist coming on the show later this year, who I met through a conversation just like this with a taxi driver. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Because I grew up, my old man, I, always, I remember as a kid saying t- to my dad all the time, oh, dad, you're so embarrassing, you talk to anybody. And now I hear Jack and Liam, not so much Sophie because she's a bit too young yet, but they always go, why, why do you always have to have a conversation with people? Like you know, at, the, at the deli or at the butchers or, you know, like you say, at, on the sideline at footy. And it's, it, But it seems to be an art that's being lost. Why do you reckon it's being lost? Where do you reckon it's disappearing to? Ah, uh, Distraction. It's easier to do it in text or by sending an email or posting something. And because of that, we are losing our ability to be empathetic. We are too worried about what's next as opposed to having a true conversation with the person in front of us. We don't take the time to draw out stories and we don't care as much. I mean, there are certainly communities, don't get me wrong, there are communities around the place where this is very, very prevalent. But in many communities, the first question is, how's business? How, how's work? How's the, and we're losing that personal touch and it's because of social, it's because of the, the pace of life, it's because we don't take responsibility, we're not disciplined to know that the most important thing for another person is to hear their name mentioned and we're not curious about other people and they're in, we're not genuinely interested in other people and it's becoming a very shallow conversation. We sit down and talk. You talk, then I talk. You talk, then I talk. You talk, then I talk. And if you don't finish quick enough, I'll talk over you. And that's how life is and it's easier to do it these days by sending a text than picking up a phone or having a conversation with people. But i tell you, there are people out there that have the most amazing stories to tell. Yes. And all they want is an opportunity. To tell it. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas a lot of the old-time Australians will say, good yarn. Just tell me your good yarn. And that's. I also think it's respect. Mm. But it's got to be a priority for you. You've got to be curious. And we've actually got a guest coming up on the show shortly who wrote a book about curiosity, which I'm really excited about because to me that is one of the virtues that if we take notice of it and we develop it, that will open so many gates. And it is... Gervais, Michael Gervais, one of our previous guests a couple of weeks ago, talked about game recognises game. Mm. And when a parent is curious, all other kids say, why are you going to talk to everybody, Dad? They're, they're seeing it. They're hearing it. They're feeling it. And when the time's right, they'll remember back to the lessons that Dad taught them, that'll be one of them. So what's this got to do with the show? I think you're going to love this. Here's, here's my, here's my sedgeway into our mm. closing song. <laughs> no, this is another dodgy one. No, 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 this is classic. Not brand on the run, you sure? We love our music, right? And the show is about great music of all genres Mm -hmm. and where we can, we like to find a lesson of rock. Mm -hmm. The art of great music is in the telling of a story. Regardless of the genre of music, or as Boy George said, there is no genre, there's just music that moves people, but a story moves people. But you have to listen to the music to hear the story. And what I'm suggesting is that people finish the show, have a conversation with somebody and listen to the music they have to say, like listen to their story. And our song to take us out is The Doobies. Listen to the music, listen to the story. We're out.
0: Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.